parents, let me give you a disclaimer here at the onset. Today's message, because of the, we're going verse by verse through Deuteronomy chapter 22, it is rated PG-13. So you might want, if you don't normally send your kids to class, maybe today would be the day to do that. And fifth and sixth graders are welcome to join them as well. Um, I thought that last week was going to be the toughest chapter in Deuteronomy, and it was amazing how it all came together, not because of me, but because the scripture is just so amazing. It dealt with some difficult passages, and this week is no different. This is some of the most difficult passages in Deuteronomy, but because we are committed to teach the full counsel of the Word of God, we have to go verse by verse because we don't want to skip stuff. If you were to ask me to speak somewhere at another church, and I was to pick any passage or any chapter in the Bible... This would probably be my last one. I would not pick this chapter. So, um, Patty, Patty, come on up here. Patty's our, our uh, scripture reader this morning. And I'm going to have her use this mic. Is that okay? And uh, Patty is new to Revolution. Oh, before I, before I have you do that, I want to qualify something for those of you new. First of all, we have several first-time guests. Let's give them a hand. We're glad they're here. So, um, when Trevor's up here singing, and then you got to... Uh, a, a pretty blonde-headed lady up sitting up here says, you look good. We're not promoting being groupies. She knows that he lost a lot of weight. That's what she was talking about. So I just thought oh, yeah. people, yeah, people, you do look cute too, though, but if I could say that. So, but anyway, I didn't want you to think that we're just, we're calling out who looks attractive or whatever. He, he's, he's in good physical shape. Good job. You should have brought Maroney with you, though. That, we, we, we miss Maroney. Yeah. Okay, cool. Patty, tell us a little bit about yourself and what God's doing in your life before you read the scripture for us. So um, just real quick, uh, I like to think that the Lord is happy and crying with tears this morning because this is a full house. I've never seen it this full before. So God bless everybody and thank the Lord. Um, so I came to Revolution Church last year, I think in December, early December. And, um, you know, we initially just came to test it out. We had some very rough times the last couple of years, and I just felt that God was leading me a different direction from the church we usually went to. I want to say that as soon as we stepped in this church, we just kept coming, and we love being here ever since. So I think this is home now. Amen. <laughs> okay. Cool. All right, and we, uh, we baptized our son, Jose, just a few months ago. Yes. So yeah, Jose, <laughs> over here. All right. So... Pray for Patty. This is a long chapter, and it's a difficult chapter, but follow along. Here we go. Okay. Uh, Deuteronomy 22. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know where he is, you shall bring it home to your house, and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your bro brother's donkey or his ox falling down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloth. For whoever does these things in a abomination to the Lord your God. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother from the young. 
You shall let the mother go, and the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house, if anyone shall fall from it. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with, any, with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. You shall not make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment, with which you cover yourself. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and when I came near her, I did not find her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry her, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver, and give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. And if the thing is true that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, and the man who lay with the woman, and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. And if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help through she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then the only man who lay with her shall die. But you shall not do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Because he met her in the open country, and though he betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one there to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated, violated her. He may not divorce her all of his days. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. 
Amen. Good job, Patty. Give her a hand. Okay, so let's have a time of honesty and transparency. How many of you felt a little uncomfortable reading through that scripture and felt maybe even more uncomfortable for Patty? Okay, yeah. The Bible deals with uncomfortable topics. And I am so glad that our God loves us enough to get into the nitty-gritty of life and deal with difficult issues. Okay? Not every verse of scripture is meant to be cross-stitched and put on your refrigerator or on your wall. Okay? Not everything makes a great bumper sticker. Okay? There are verses in the Bible that are difficult. And it's not because God is difficult. It's because life is difficult. Life is complicated. God would not have to even discuss these things if people didn't make such a mess of the world. But he has to. It's, it's called damage control. And here we see there's, there's basically six things in this chapter. Protecting a neighbor's property, protecting a gender, ident gender identity, protecting the life of birds, which again, these will seem really random, but you'll see where I'm going with this, where God's going. Protecting the life of guests, protecting national identity, and protecting neighbor, uh, your neighbor's wife. Now, we talk a lot about chiastic structure in this church, don't we? Because it really does help you understand the scriptures. Can you see it there? Let me color it for you and see if you can see. Notice how in, in the Eastern culture, they worked their way into a topic and then worked their way out the same way. So the beginning is parallel to the end and, and so forth. So the beginning, he talks about your neighbor's property. He ends with your neighbor's wife. Then he talks about protecting gender identity and he parallels that with protecting national identity. But the core of the message is protecting life. Everything from the life of a little bitty bird to the guests that you have in your house. And so that's what this is all about. It's about protection and protecting life specifically. But let's go through each one. Protecting your neighbor's property. He says that if you see your brother's ox, and notice he calls brother. He doesn't mean literally the guy who's genetically related to, share the same mom. He's talking about nationally. That Israel saw themselves as a brotherhood. That anybody who was a Jew in the nation that was going into the promised land, they were your brothers, they were your sisters. And we need to see them that way. Our New Testament parallel is we see that the church, people being our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people set apart for God's purposes. And we're supposed to see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Galatians 6.10 says... Uh, as you therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all people, but especially unto those of the household of faith. It is not an either or, it is a both. Do you love your, the person down the street? Yes, but you especially give your very best for the family of God that God has placed you in. It says you shall take them back to the brother. So you find an ox. How, how many of you have driven down a road and saw a cow outside the fence? We see it all the time. You just broke this commandment because you didn't take it back. I know you didn't take it back. <laughs> Different story. But anyway, uh, but if you see it, you have the obligation to go the extra. And imagine if you're working in a field and you're, you're trying to get all this done before it rains. And here comes Farmer Joe's ox that comes over into your pasture. Man, you got to go find a rope. You got to tie it up. You got to hope it wants to follow you. You got to walk a mile down the road and find him, hope he's home. If not, you got to tie him to a post, make sure he's taken care of, and walk back. It's a hassle. But did you know loving your neighbor as yourself is a hassle? And a lot of people have this idea the Old Testament is full of rules and regulations and God is mean. But the New Testament, oh, it's freedom and peace and God is good, as if God is bipolar. It's not that at all. You see love your neighbor in the Old Testament and you see standards for good living in the New Testament as well. But it's something we need to be involved in. And he says, and if you don't know whose ox it is, 
You bring it home. And what does bring it home mean? You got to stall it. You got to keep it. You got to feed it. Oh, now it's not just taking me a walk down the road. Now it's costing me some money. And did you know that caring for people will cost you? Caring for people means you've you got to go the extra mile, literally. You've got to dig, dig, dig deep in your pocket sometimes to care for one another. And watch this. You do that until your brother seeks it. There's also some mutual responsibility for the brother to come find his ox. Imagine someone who is really careless with his livestock. Well, it's okay. Everybody's just going to bring them back to me. Uh-uh. The onus is on him. Go find your livestock and go mend the fence and do it right this time so he doesn't keep pushing through that gate. Uh, and it says, if you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment, if he leaves a cloak on your fence, after, maybe he was helping you build the fence and he left his cloak there. You, you don't just say, hey, finders keepers, losers weepers, right? That's what we say in America, but it's not what they said back then. Nothing biblical about that. And it says, you may not ignore it. And we find ourselves in America where we just ignore people in need all the time. We don't want to make eye contact. We, we pull into it. We push the remote on our garage. We pull straight in. We don't want to see our neighbors. We don't know our neighbors. And yet we got so much stuff going on in, in, in the world around us, people who are legitimately hurting, and we, we can't ignore it. And the Bible says that in the Old Testament. This isn't just a Jesus command. This is, this is Old Testament. And then uh, it says, you shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox falling down, by the way. And again, the implication here, one thing I read said that if, the, if he's plowing with it and he gets off and goes into a ditch, he must be there also. you got to help him. It says right there, help him lift it out. So the implication is the owner's there with it this time. And so you got to say, man, I was on the way to the market or maybe I was on the way to synagogue or on my way to visit my mom, but i got to stop and help this guy pull this ox out of a ditch. Luke chapter 14, verse 2, it says, And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Dropsy was a condition where your body was retaining fluid and you looked all swollen everywhere. And you've seen people like that, especially if they're in the hospital with, with uh, stage four something or other. And so Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But no surprise, they remained silent. Then he took the guy with dropsy. And this is on what day? Yeah. On the Sabbath. And he healed him and he sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well, where is it? what is he referencing? The book of Deuteronomy, right here. What is the most quoted book in the Bible? Deuteronomy. Jesus quotes from all the time. Paul quotes from all the time. And that's why we're studying Deuteronomy, because it is like the foundation, not only of American society and Western civilization, but it's the foundation of the Bible itself. It's what everybody seems to be quoting. And it says, if he falls into a well on a Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? So you guys, let me get this right. You're on your way to synagogue and your neighbor's donkey's fallen in a ditch or a well or something. You, you say your law, your rabbinical law will help him pull it out. But you're saying this guy with dropsy who is suffering, I can't help him. How crazy is that? But you know, you see that in religion where people have ways of worshiping God and they get so caught up in the way they worship God, they forget about God. And they forget about what it's for. And they, and they get caught up in, well, they, did, they didn't pass an offering plate or they didn't do this like my church did, as if your church is the standard for every other church the way the world does things. You know, we can get so caught up in the way we do things that we forget the principle here that, wait a minute, we're, your law says to save animals, but you can't save a person? So Jesus kind of has them in, in, between a rock and a hard place there. And so, so when we talk about protecting your neighbor's property, the lessons we learn from this is that there's the brotherhood 
and the sisterhood of Israel and the brotherhood and sisterhood in the body of Christ, it does matter. It does make a difference. Okay, and what I, there's always a balance here. Sometimes you can go to church where it's like going to Kroger or H-E-B. You know, if you, if you like the service and the air conditioning's fine, you can find everything you want and the price is right, you'll keep coming back. But as soon as someone bothers you or offends you, whatever, you're out of there. You, you have no loyalty to that. God forbid that churches be that way, that we are consumer-driven. Well, I like this song, but I didn't like that song. And I, I like this, but I like the pastor's message, but I didn't like this part right here. And I, you know, four people said hi to me. Why didn't the other six say hi to me? Whatever, just whatever. And we get to where we're just critiquing, and we're consumer-driven, and we're trying to treat churches like they're grocery stores. It's not that way at all. Revolution Church and every other Bible-believing church needs to be family. And you know how it is with family. You go to the family reunion, there's some people you love to see, and then you got, every family has a crazy Aunt Nancy, they're just like, oh my gosh, there she is, you know. And, uh, and you, you just have to deal with that. You, but what do you do? You talk to her, you get her some iced tea, you sit down, you visit with her, you give her a hug. You would never choose to hang out with the crazy Aunt Nancy, but she's family, right? And in our church, we got some crazy Aunt Nancy's, right? I mean, I won't mention anybody by name, but his initials are Lauren Caden. So some people are like that to where you just kind of put up with these people, okay? Lauren and I go way back. How many years are we talking about, Lauren? How many years are we talking about, Lauren? Uh, 16, 17 years? Not more than that, actually. Yeah, golly. Remember, remember, it was volleyball night at the gym, and Lauren comes up on his bicycle. And we've been together ever, ever since. So good. I cannot shake him. All right, so... Imagine a world where you live in where everybody was watching out for everybody else's stuff. Where if they dinged your car in the parking lot, everybody left a note. Where if they got your mail by accident, they actually walked it over to you instead of throwing it away. Where, where everybody was considered, where everybody put their grocery cart back. I mean, imagine a world where people live. This is what God was trying to create. Of course, it never happened because people are sinful. But imagine how considered the world be. And just because everybody else doesn't do it doesn't mean that you shouldn't. Okay? I know someone who every time they go to Aldi, if you go to Aldi, you have to put a quarter in to get the cart out. And whenever they go to put the cart back, they don't put it in all the way and leave the quarter in there for the next person who may not have a quarter. That's a great practice. We need to make the world a more considerate place. And then the other thing we, that is being taught here is that you are your brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. Where does that phrase come from? Somebody help me. Brother's keeper? Genesis, Genesis right. But Cain slew Abel. God says, hey, where's your brother? As if God doesn't know. And he goes, hey, what am I? Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer to that question is, yes, you are. Yes, you are. And you haven't been. In fact, you murdered your brother. But that's, we'll get to that more in a second. The second big point here is protecting gender identity. Woo. Man, is that a hot topic today? But man, it isn't amazing that when you preach verse by verse through the Bible, God will take care in his sovereignty of what goes on. I remember when I was going through the book of Ruth, and the Me Too movement started. And what was Ruth, in the chapter I was in, Boaz is protecting Ruth from, se from sexual harassment. And that's when the whole Me Too thing broke. And there were so many other coincidences going through the book of Ruth and every other time. But we're, here we are going into Gay Pride Month where the world is trying to tell you there isn't just two genders. There's, depending on who you ask, 19 or 26 or whatever number. And the Bible makes it very clear there are two. And, and pray for me because I want to be compassionate about this. Uh, but yet at the same time, there's a, there is a sense of, if I could say this word, righteous indignation. 
where it is aggravating to see people attacking the, the beautiful picture that God has created and trying to deface it. It says that a, a woman should not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, again, all of this I need to put in context. We're talking about God giving commandments to Israel as they're going to the promised land, Deuteronomy, under a theocracy. God is their king. He makes the laws. So th this is not, some people will say, well, Christians, you're so inconsistent because all these weird commandments of Deuteronomy, you don't do them. Well, I don't live in a theocracy. That was a thing that God did by an example back then. But the principles are still true, okay? And so what's interesting is, though, if you watch any Bible-related movie, you know, I strongly recommend The Chosen if you haven't seen it already, but everybody pretty much wears robes. <laughs> so we're not talking about an issue of pants versus skirts. There were certain people in the you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s that were very legalistic, saying women shouldn't wear pants. And there's even some denominations today that do that. Well, if you're talking about Western America, yes. But in the Bible, when everyone wore robes, what are you talking about? You know? And so the way you could tell the difference between man's apparel and a woman's apparel was pretty much by the decorativeness of it and the way they covered their head or didn't cover it. It had nothing to do with pants or skirts or culottes or any of that thing. How many of you don't even know what culottes are? You have no idea. Okay, I'm going way back, okay? Um, so we need to, yeah, we need to follow the principle here is what does your culture say looks feminine and what does your culture say looks masculine and men should look like men and women should look like women. And again, that may vary from culture to culture, but modesty is always included, but there's certain things that look male and certain things that look female. And God says, I want the two to look different. I created them very different. The world's trying to say that other than your genitalia, you're pretty much exactly the same. And that is so not true. Our brains are so different. Okay, women, you have a much better peripheral vision than men do. We walk into a room, we're oblivious. Someone gives you a look, like looks you up and down and goes like that. A wife has gone, man, did you see what he just did? And the husband's like... I don't know, where are the pretzels? I don't know. You know? <laughs> and men have a better vision uh, focus on one thing. That's why men are driving down the road and they know exactly how far that truck is and how when they need to break. And a woman's like, ah, ah, and look at everything. And just, everything's going to hit them because their vision is like this and everything's coming at them. And men are like, no, laser vision, straight ahead, boom, one inch, boom, perfect, every time. Right? And there are male and female differences. And all those differences show up in the first few weeks. God created male and female. That's the way it is. We, and the world is trying to mess this up. And it's, it's, and it's a deeper issue than just gender. Okay, we'll talk about it in one second. So let me tell you, you need to, as God's people, embrace your masculinity or embrace your femininity as, God, as a gift from God and celebrate how the differences display the glory of God. Think about this. Before the fall... Before, everybody say before. Before the fall, God looked at Adam and said, it's not good that he's alone. He had just made the sun. Man, it's good. He had just made the stars and the sky. It's good. He made the heavens and earth. It's good. He made vegetation, plants. And every day he said, it's good, it's good, it's good. And he goes, this isn't good. And he did that on purpose. It's not because God created something flawed. He wanted the man to see, after he named all these animals two by two, and here's all, you know, male, female, male, female, male, female. And, hey, Adam, you kind of catch on to a pattern here? Uh, no, I'm a male. I'm oblivious. What? What's going on here? You know, you need a wife. Oh, yeah, that'd be cool. And so he, he, 
He made them extremely different because a man by himself does not display the full characteristics of God. And a woman by herself do not, does not display all the full characteristics of God. But when a man and a woman come together, not just physically, but spiritually, mentally, emotionally, then they can display, or at least attempt to display, the full glory of the character of God. Now, God does represent him as a father. Jesus did come as a male. But there are so many passages in the Bible and don't think I'm preaching heresy, where God presents himself in the feminine way, like a hen gathering her chicks and several other passages, to where God needs both a man and a woman to display his full glory. And that's what marriage is all about. Jesus, in, in, in the New Testament, a lot of people say, well, that was Old Testament. And a lot of people who want to condone you know, the gender confusion and homosexuality and the whole LGBT, uh, they say, you know, well, that was Old Testament. But in New Testament, Jesus says nothing about homosexuality. That, that is absolutely, absolutely not true. In Matthew 19, 4, it says, and he answered, because they were trying to promote divorce for any reason. He says, have you not read? He's like, you guys are religious leaders. You haven't, you haven't read Genesis? That he who created them from the beginning, he made them male and female. He could have said he made them two people. He didn't. Jesus makes it very clear that God's intent for marriage in Genesis and God's intent for the year 2021 is male and female, one male, one female for life. That's God's intention from the beginning. And Jesus says, I'm not changing that. In fact, it's amazing. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Notice his parents did the same thing. Okay. He shall leave his father and mother. And let me go to the next one here. And hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It takes two people to become the one flesh to, to portray the deity of God, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they are no longer two, but they're one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, what God has called a marriage, what God has said, take a male and a female to my glory, don't let man separate that. And it doesn't mean just don't let them get divorced. It means that's what a marriage is. Don't let the culture destroy that. Gender confusion is a spiritual attack on the gospel. What is the gospel? That God saw a sinful world and he sent his only beloved perfect son to die for the sins of the world. And because he died on that cross... Our salvation is complete in that, our forgiveness. And he buried all those sins. On the third day, he rose again. And all those who come to him are part of the bride of Christ. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. We are his bride. It's not he's the bridegroom and we're another groom. Or he's the bride and we're a bride. Those two, and you've heard me talk about this before in detail, about how much even the relationship between a man and a woman is a picture of the gospel. That a man initiates his love towards a woman, and when his seed enters into her, which is the word of God, it brings forth life. It's all a beautiful picture of what the gospel is. And when the world wants to change all this, they are attacking the gospel itself. If you want to read more about this, I strongly recommend this book called Understanding Gender Dysphoria. This is what psychologists have called this for decades. That when you're not sure about if you're a boy or a girl, it's called gender dysphoria. And it used to be a mental illness. And now it's totally embraced and celebrated. And there's been nothing changed statistically to change psychologists' opinion of this other than the culture says you better or we're going to be mad at you. So if you want to study more about that, this is a great book to read. And so let me just tell you this. When it comes to any uh, controversial subject, don't let people point to rare anomalies to confuse you, especially when it's related to 
God's design. Let me use this example here. An example, proponents of abortion say, what about rape and incest, okay? And, and that's a touchy subject, and I understand people who wouldn't have compassion for that. I personally think that the baby should not be punished for the crime of its father. If the father's guilty of rape, don't give the child the death penalty, okay? But that's a different subject for the mom, and she's the one to deal with that. Again, we could debate that later. I'm still for no reason, but anyway, I'm willing to understand that exception. But people point to that because, and this is even generous, that rape and incest combined only account for 1.5% of all abortions, and that number, I believe, is inflated because they're totally taking the mom's word for it. She can say she was raped even though she wasn't just because it sounds more justifiable. But let's just say that is the number and that's being generous. You're talking 98.5% of abortions are for other reasons. And here's the top three. Inconvenience, finances, and I don't want to parent alone. And you know what would solve all three of these? Adoption. Adoption. I've had friends who will stand out in front of an abortion clinic saying, don't kill your baby, we will adopt it. And some people actually take them up on it, but most people are like, no. So you can't claim it's finite. There is a shortage of babies to be adopted. Just try to adopt a baby, and you're talking $40,000 and lots of legal process and trying to find a baby. It's difficult. If we would adopt all the babies that we're aborting, there would be no shortage. And there's a, an abundance of Christians willing to take these children on. So... That's an example. So when we apply this to the whole gender confusion thing, less than 0.01% of people are born what's called intersex or hermaphrodite, which means ambiguous genitalia. So they're born in a way that's like, huh, is it a boy or is it a girl? Okay. And what's been done in the past is when they do gender assignment, again, we're talking rare, 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 rare number of babies born with this problem. Okay. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're not healthy. But 90% of those, the parents, because it's easier to do the surgery, to make them female, okay? Now what they're saying is, no, let the child grow up and let them choose. But I think there's a whole lot of problems with that. But let's just say you want to do that. That's your right as a parent. But the, what the problem is, is the overwhelming majority of people who are, quote, transgender, the statistic is even smaller. So we're not talking people saying, I was born with ambiguous, you know, biology, we're talking about people who are born normally male or normal female, but because our culture is so warped and they're being indoctrinated. That's why in Ohio, I told you this story before, but um, just I think it was like nine weeks ago, there was this girl, fourth grade, went to school. Everything in life was normal. She was a girl. She went by a girl's name. One of her friends said, I no longer identify as a girl. I'm going to start identifying as a boy. And the girl said, well, that sounds fun. Me too. Just like immature fourth graders can do. She wasn't struggling with anything up to that point. She just wanted to fit in with her friend. Immediately, the school started, gave her a boy's, went by her boy's name and started calling that, started writing all the papers and did not tell the parents. Two weeks went by, the parents found out about it. They went to the school and said, no, no, our daughter is no longer going by this boy's name. She has a girl's name. CPS took the daughter away. This is not just talk in the media now. This is hitting home with Christian families. I don't know if that family is Christian or not, but this is hitting home all the time to where there's such pressure from society and culture saying, you must, not only must you allow us to marry and to do our lifestyle, you must embrace it. And if you say I'm wrong, you're a hater. And now we're going to call that a hate crime. And it's just getting way over the top. It's getting scary, but God is still in control. Amen? Amen. Okay. Culture does not define right and wrong. 
God does. And by the way, science agrees with God. Isn't it amazing for decades, scientists have said, oh, you Christians don't believe in science. You practice faith. We believe in science. And all of a sudden, science is thrown out the window when it comes to unborn babies and gender. I mean, you look under a microscope and you see an unborn turtle. Do you call it a blob of tissue? You look under a microscope and see an unborn horse. Do you call it a blob of tissue? No, they know that that's a horse. It's a, it's a horse that's not been born yet. And yet, all of a sudden, the baby's a blob of tissue, even though it has its own brain waves at 18 days. And 18 days is way before any abortions ever happened. They don't, usually, a mom doesn't even know she's pregnant by 18 days. We are talking a human life, and all of a sudden, but they can't say that, because they know if it was human, that they, many of them have already known they lost the debate, that yes, it is human life, but we still think that human life can be taken if the mom wants it to be done. Science says that there's two genders. Every cell in your body screams XY or XX. So all of a sudden, where does science go? It's because if people want what they want, they will do anything to rationalize it. And I guarantee you, you all, this is, I've not had an exception to this yet. Everybody I've talked to and tried to have compassionate conversations with who is questioning the Bible, questioning whether there is a God, questioning anything, salvation, Jesus Christ, they've got a, a lifestyle issue going on. Every time. I've not had an exception yet. They are dealing with homosexuality or premarital sex or whatever it may be. Think about the perfect storm. You're, you grow up in church. You know, we have a lot of young adults in the class. You grow up in church. You've been taught the Bible by your mom and dad. You've been taught the Bible by Pastor Gary. And all of a sudden, you go off to college, and there's all these hot girls all over the place, and everybody's drinking, everybody's messing around. And you got a professor saying, there's no God, and what your parents taught you, they, they don't have to do that. And you've got the biggest temptation going on in your life, and the only thing standing between you and this big temptation is your belief in God that your parents taught you. Hmm. Huh. The girl or God, the girl or God. And what often happens with 80% of teenagers who grow up in Christian homes, they say, the girl or the guy. And we make our choices based on our own convenient morality rather than what is the truth of science or the Bible. Christians need to strike the balance. And this is, pray for me as your pastor that I do this. Strike the balance of showing compassion while still standing on the truth. Churches left and right are caving on this issue. They don't want to touch it. They're embracing the whole LGBT and all that. I can't do that. Not because I don't want to, because the Bible clearly teaches this Old and New Testament. And so, you know, I, we've got people who've come to Revolution Church, like the Garcias, who say, we want a church that stands strong on the issues. And praise God for them. And we've got people, we've got two families now that have left the church because I'm standing strong on the issues. I, I, have, to, I have to answer before God. And by the way, it's not just pastors that answer for God. We all, we all have to answer for God on what we believe and what we teach and what we practice. Let's go to the next one. This seems bizarre. It seems like random. Protecting the life of birds. What does that have to do with the other ones? It says, if you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on, on the young, young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go but the young yourself may, the young you may take for yourself that it may go well with you and you may live long. Wow, what is that about? Well, he's pointing to just one incident to draw attention to a whole broader incident that, that he taught on Exodus. He's just reminding of that, that basically if you will take care of the land and the animals and all that stuff, the land and the animals will take care of you. And basically he's saying if you take the mom, you've just killed the goose that lays the eggs. 
Okay, if you leave the mom, there'll be more eggs. And of course, people say, why is he taking any eggs? Why is he taking any chicks? Because that's what animals are for. Okay, and if you have a problem with that, then you have a problem with the Bible. The Bible says that God has made all, all, all meats and they're free to, to eat and we, that they're blessed and sanctified by grace and all that stuff. And it's, it's very clear there. There's no abuse take, taken care of. Now, can a vegetarian diet be better for you? Maybe that's what they did before the fall. But after the flood, God said of all these animals you may eat. You don't have to. You can if you want to. But that's a whole other subject. But he's basically saying take care of nature and nature will take care of you. That's the balance here. Man, Back in the 50s and 60s, this, the industrial expansion of the United States was just throwing environment to the, to the wind. It was just gone. We, were, we had literally lakes up in Michigan that were on fire. They were so polluted, okay? Man, the Bible doesn't embrace that at all. But the Bible also doesn't embrace all this other stuff where um, you, you worship the planet, let, let, the, let the forest do whatever it wants to do. No, we're supposed to manage livestock. We're supposed to manage the forest. We're supposed to manage the farms. We are stewards of this planet. Proverbs 12.10 says, Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. And there's another proverb I, I thought about putting in here. It talks about that the fool doesn't eat the game he just killed in hunting. In other words, he just shot it for fun. The Bible forbids that. So to this day, I will not let my kids step on an ant just because they want to or pour salt on a slug. Remember you doing that when you were a kid? Come on, raise your hand. Go ahead. Admit you did it. Yes, God forgives sin. Okay, but I don't, I, I don't want to do any of that stuff. I don't want to kill something unless it's either a pest that's threatening my home or something like that or I'm going to eat it. Other than that, we don't, we don't do that. Last night, I did kill a snake in the driveway. So, but uh, that was to protect my dogs because it was not far from my dogs. Um, so, you might recognize this as a sparrow. Sparrows, as far as human consumption or use, are pretty useless birds. You don't go to a nice restaurant and order sparrow. You know, you don't raise sparrows. You don't make them pets. They're, as far as humans are concerned, and in nature they serve a purpose, as far as people are concerned, they're very worthless. And Jesus said, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? That's how worthless they are. And not one of them is forgotten before God. You know that even if a sparrow falls, God knows it and pays attention. So with that in mind, Jesus says, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. And sometimes we get this idea that we're not valuable to God, and God says, yeah, you're valuable. You're worth a few sparrows. <laughs> no, you're worth much more, more than that, much more than that. And then he talks about protecting the life of your guests. Also a life theme. He says, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet on your roof. In biblical times, houses were flat on top. And so you couldn't just leave a flat roof without a protective wall around it. It would look often like this. In other words, you can say, well, my neighbor fell off my roof. It wasn't my fault. He entered at your own risk. No, you do have, by law, some responsibility to your neighbor, even if he is klutzy or whatever, or especially because he's klutzy, you need to put this protection around your roof. It's just a simple consideration. And again, it's not just some random thing. He's saying basically take this example and put this in every area of your life. Just the bird is an example of what you should do with all nature. This roof is just an example of what you do with everything towards your neighbor. So the commands about birds and parapets aren't just random laws thrown in. They are examples of the type of consideration citizens, especially Christian citizens, should show in every area of life. The next thing, protecting national identity. Protecting national identity. 
And this is where it gets really bizarre, but watch what he's doing. He said, you, you, you don't sow two kinds of seeds in the same vineyard. You don't hook up an ox and a donkey on, on the same yoke. Now, on the seeds, I have no idea. Maybe there's someone here who went to FFA or is an expert in horticulture. You can explain why. But now the ox and donkey, this is obvious. When you put the yoke around the animal, if they are different sizes, the smaller one is going to pay. And they, they had pointy Think that they came around the shoulders of both oxen and they came to a point. So if that one ox decides, I ain't doing this anymore and starts to walk away, he gets poked. No, no, get back on track. And if you were the smaller one, the donkey, you got poked with every step. And some, some owner of a farm, let's say one of his oxen dies and he needs something else and he sticks a donkey in there, he's being cruel to the donkey. Now, Paul uses this same example. Well, I won't get on myself, but he says, and then the next one, we don't know why. At least I don't have any good theories. You shall not wear cloth, cloth of wool and linen. In other words, polyester is out. It not only went out with the 70s, they went out back in the, in the Old Testament, okay? God said, you don't do that. Now, again, does this apply to us here in the 21st century? No, this was under a theocracy with one nation, Jewish people, that God wanted everything they do to be unique and distinct so that other nations would scratch their head and go, what? What are they doing over there? And more importantly, it was an object lesson to the kids. Mom, dad, why do, we, why do we do this? Or why don't we do that? It's because we're God's chosen people, honey. And God asks us to be different. I don't know exactly why we can't wear polyester, but God says don't. So people see that we dress differently and they ask, what's different about you? And that's a chance for us to tell them about Jehovah. Because we're supposed to be a city set on a hill. And we're supposed to be the Jerusalem, the light of the world. And so it was a matter of being different. And then he says, you will, you, you will make tassels on the four corners. How many of you ever seen a Jewish person with tassels on their, on their shirt or on their, something they're wearing? And those things, if you read in Numbers 15, it's a reminder to keep the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm not sure what the number four has to do with ten. I think it was just a visual thing. When you look down, if you look to the right, there's a tassel. You look to the left, and people behind you could see it. So there was no way around not seeing one of the tassels. An interesting thing is, but, and every tassel they made would be white, but they'd run one blue thread through it. And of course, Israel's colors this day are what? Blue and white. And so it was a national identity. It was a way to look a certain way that was distinct. And here's an example of an Orthodox Jew with his tassels on. But you remember when Jesus walked through, the woman who had the issue of blood, it says she, some translations said she touched the hem of his garment. Hem should have been translated the tassels of his garment. Okay, she was touching the towel. She knew if I could only touch the tassel of his garden, uh, if I could touch his national identity, that he is the Messiah of Israel, and I believe that, I'll be healed. That's what was going on there in that situation. So you got mixing seed, mixing animals, and mixing animals, Paul uses this in the fast forward to 2 Corinthians. He says, you, as believers, shall not marry or be involved in intimate relationships with an unbeliever. He said, what fellowship does light have with darkness? And then what does he say? You, don't, you should not be unequally yoked. He's referring back to Deuteronomy again, saying, just like you wouldn't put an ox and a donkey together, that one of, one of the animals is going to suffer in a mixed marriage of Christian and non-Christian, one of the people are going to suffer. And it's not good for you. you know, people call it missionary dating. And sometimes they have testimonies. Like I taught on this once a few months ago. And somebody said, well, I, I dated my wife and we married. And she became a Christian years later. Great. You're one in a hundred. There's 99 out there that they never become a believer. And life is hard their whole marriage. 
God says don't date, don't get involved. I can even go far and prove from 2 Corinthians 6 that you should not be in tight business relationships with non-believers. You're not supposed to be unequally yoked with them. Um, 1 Peter 2.9 says, but it says you, he translates this in the New Testament, you also Christians are a chosen race. Just like Israel was a chosen race, God's saying you're chosen and you should be different. A royal priesthood, which is one of the things that makes us the type of church we are, we believe in the priesthood of the believers. You don't have to confess your sin to any man or any woman. You are your own priest. You go directly to the throne of Christ to receive mercy. And uh, we are a holy nation. So I am an American second. I am a Christian first. My citizenship is not of this earth. My citizenship is in heaven. And what it, why does he want us to be this special, unique, chosen people who are different? Because he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, and we need to tell the world all about it. So the last one here, protecting your neighbor's wife. Again, it started with your neighbor's property, but now it's going to end with protecting your neighbor's wife. And there's seven laws, and this is the chunk of the chapter, and you, you heard Patty read it. It's some awkward topics, and I'm not trying to avoid them. I will go through them fairly quickly. The, some are super obvious, and I won't talk about them too long. The com most complicated ones where I'm going to spend the time. So don't destroy his, a woman's reputation by divorcing her selfishly, okay? So here's what would happen. A guy and a girl would get married, and he's being a selfish jerk, and he's tired of her sexually or whatever reasons, and he wants to say, you know what? I want a divorce. But the only real grounds for divorce are uncleanness or unfaithfulness. And you told me you had never been with a guy before getting married, but I'm going to tell everybody you have. And there, there was no evidence that you were a virgin when we got married. And I'm going to tell everybody that you, that, that wasn't the case. And what, what smart parents would do, and this I know it sounds weird, is that after the night of the honeymoon, they'd go in and get the linens and they would keep them. And if they, that accusation ever came up, they'd say, well, right here is the evidence that she was a virgin, and that she had not been with anybody else. And then, so now what would happen is he'd have to be fine. He'd have to pay 100 pieces of silver because he disrespected this woman, and, uh, and they would beat him. So it's like, you say, well, Gary, this sounds so harsh and so cruel. Let, again, put it in context. We're talking about a pagan world who disrespected women. Women were treated like property. Most women were forced into temple prostitution and treated violently, and, and a man could rape a woman. There was no consequence whatever. It was her word against his, and if you want to fight me over it, bring it. There was no law on that. And here, Moses is setting up standards, saying, no, no, we're not treating women that way. You're not going to just divorce them for any reason. And um, I, I tried to do some research on this, but I, I really believe this is where the phrase don't air your dirty laundry comes from. I don't know for a fact that that's where it is, but th that's what's covered here in a lot of verses. The second one here, it says, because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel. Again, no other culture up to this point had even cared what the woman's reputation was. They could say whatever they wanted to say, no consequence. And Moses said, nah, women are equal to men. We're going to treat them with honor and with dignity. Second thing here, don't dishonor the gift of sex and dishonor your parents. So let's suppose it was true. She told the guy she was engaged to. And again, chastity and virginity was a big deal back then. It was a make or break deal whether you wanted to marry someone or not. And it really, it should be a big deal today, but it's not. But it was a super big deal back then because you know what else was involved in this? Any Hebrew woman could potentially be the mother of the Messiah. That's why we talk about the Virgin Mary because there's no question 
where Jesus came from. That's why it's another, it, was a real, it wasn't just a personal purity thing. It was a religious thing that like, no, I can mess up the messianic line if I have premarital sex. So it was a very big deal. But let's suppose it's true that she actually did mess around before she married and she actually did it in her dad's house. Then, then there was big consequences of that. And again, we were talking about betrothal. Today we say we're engaged and that could mean nothing. <laughs> but in the Bible, if you're engaged, you were legally married. You just hadn't had your honeymoon yet. It's like we are betrothed. Remember Joseph and Mary? Joseph had, never, had not been married to Mary yet, but he had to write a divorcement if he was going to get rid of her, and he was going to do it privately until the angel stepped in and said, wait, wake up, dude. You're not going to do this. So um, number three, don't commit adultery with a married person. Again, it's a picture of the gospel, and the punishment was severe. It was stoning. So if you're a husband and you had a beautiful wife, you knew the law had your back. Or if you had a, a, a husband you were deeply in love with, you knew that the law had your back, that if, if he messes up or someone tries to mess with him, that the, that the whole country, the whole town had your back on that. And again, it's a picture of the gospel. But we also have to remember the compassion side of it. In John chapter 8, verse 11, the woman taken in adultery is brought before Jesus. And he says, okay, yeah, I agree with you. Whoever is without sin, you get to throw the first stone. You know, he, he, he gave the perfect answer. And of course, they all one by one went away. And then he said, woman, where are your accusers? And she looks around and says, there are none. He said, neither do I condemn you, but don't forget the rest of it. Go and sin no more. Jesus shows compassion. He loves the sinner, but he tells her, stop sinning. Stop sinning. And that's the message we need to preach to other people. Today, the world says to you, hey, I, I do this behavior. Do you hate me? No. You're free to do whatever you want. Oh, so you're saying it's okay. No, I didn't say it's okay. I said, I love you. I don't love your behavior. Oh, so you don't love my behavior. So I shouldn't do it. No, you're free to do whatever you want. But you don't think it's okay. Right. So you hate me. No, I don't hate you. Yes, you're a hater. It's like we can't have our own, even our own opinions anymore. If they're no longer wanting to be accepted. They're wanting to be embraced. And I can embrace you. I'm not going to embrace your lifestyle. I, I don't do it. When AIDS was brand new, okay, back in the eight, early 80s, and people had no idea how you caught it, I led a man to Christ in our church who was struggling with homosexuality. And then I went to the hospital when he was dying of AIDS. And as he was on a respirator with a machine breathing for him, and all he could do was blink to acknowledge what I was saying, I held his hand, I prayed with him, and I watched him die. So do I hate those people? No. Do I condone the behavior that killed him? No, I don't. And that's, that's, the, that's the hard thing as Christians. We've got to be compassionate, yet at the same time take a hard stand on the truth of the word of God because people lose their lives and their identities and their happiness over these things. Number four, don't commit adultery with an engaged person. And basically what this is saying here is no means no. If, if anywhere along the process this woman scries out and says, help, help. Boom, your word against hers. She wins. If she screamed for help, you're done. That's it. You talk about elevating women. And, and this, is, this is not happening in the world today. We'll talk about this in a second. Not, not only did it not happen back then, it's not happening today. Don't deny a woman uh, uh, the benefit of the doubt, okay? If she, cries, if she cries for help in the country, I mean in the city, people here, they come for help. But if it's in the city and she doesn't cry for help and there's people all around, then it's showing that she's consenting. But out in the country... She could scream all day long and nobody would hear her. So whether she screamed or not, we don't know. But guess who gets the benefit of the doubt? 
She does. If she says I screamed but nobody heard, guess what? The guy's guilty and he gets the punishment. So you see that this, people will read this and say this is demeaning to women. It's exactly the opposite. It's elevating women. Verse 25 says, but if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed or she's engaged, which means she's legally married, just they haven't been together yet, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. This is super important because the, what is the fastest growing religion in the world? Islam, okay? Under Islamic law, Rape can only, Muhammad himself made this law, okay? Under Islamic law, rape can only be proven if the rapist confesses or if there are four male witnesses. Now, can you think of any circumstances under which there be four people watching what's happening? I, anyway, women who allege rape without the benefit of the act have been witnessed by four men who presumably develop a conscious afterwards are actually confessing to having sex if they or, or the accused happens to be married, then it is considered adultery, and under Islamic law, they will be stoned. We'll say, Gary, that, that was then. That doesn't happen today. Uh, February 2016, this woman was raped by ISIS, and then they turned, and then there's Arabs nearby who saw the rape happening. When it was over, they stoned her because they said she was committing adultery. And you say, Oh, Gary, this is an isolated incident. I, I, I just can't even tell you what I researched this week. This is happening all over the world. 13-year-old girls being gang raped, and then they get the death penalty because they committed adultery. It's sick. It's sick. And you say, I can't even want to live in a world like that. This is the world Moses lived in. And these laws are not ridiculous. These are not chauvinistic or misogynistic. These are elevating women and saying that women have right. And when a woman says no, she means no. And no is no by law under Moses. This was first of the kind in the world. Do you understand how unique the Bible is? So the very passages that people use to criticize the Bible are the ones that show, no, the Bible was light in a dark world. Then the sixth principle was in verse 20 and 29, don't have premarital sex. And again, this is the most difficult verse. This is the one I'll spend a little more time on. It says, if a man meets a woman, a virgin, who is not betrothed and seizes her. That's the key word. Now hold on to that word right there. Some translations even say rapes her. And I think that's very poor translation, okay? Because that's not what the Hebrew says at all. The word seize is probably the most user-friendly one, but you have to put it in context. He sees her and lies with her, and they are found. Notice it's they are found. All of a sudden, and the word found means as in they're caught. It doesn't say if he is found or he is caught. It says they. So that's a little clue. Let's keep moving here. <clears throat> it, this word's used the same way in, Hebrew, in Proverbs 17, 10. It says, behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute. Wily of heart, she seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. And I have found you. She's just sweet talking to him, right? And I have spread my couch with coverings, covered with linen. And she basically says, my husband's gone on a long journey. He won't be back. What is she doing to him? Seducing him. The word seize is also means seduces. So if you read this passage right here and you say he raped her, but then now she has to be his wife? That's not what it, that would make no sense at all. That, and again, what did we talk about last week? When something doesn't make sense, give God the benefit of the doubt. Keep studying, keep studying. Don't just say, aha, see the Bible doesn't make sense. This is talking about seduction, not abduction. 
It says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. Some translations say forces him. Now, does she literally force him? Like, did he have a choice? Yes, he did. But she's so good at the art of seduction that he, it's almost like he doesn't have a choice. It talks about being an ox led to the slaughter, etc. Anyway, and with her smooth talk, she compels him. Or again, some translations say forces him. So what's happening out here? A guy meets a girl out there and she's uh, engaged or she's not engaged, doesn't matter, either one. But he, it says he seizes her. He like embraces, oh, honey, come on, I love you. You know I love you. And she's sweet talking and she's not fighting it. She's not screaming no. And she consents. Then it's like a shotgun winning. It's like you guys need to get married because we take marriage that seriously. Is that saying we need to practice this law here and now today? No, that was under uh, Hebrew law in the promised land. It says, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father, the young woman, 50 shekels. Now, you, you got to pay the dowry still, man. You, you've, you've bought her now as far as the dowry. And you, you, you've bought the rights to her. She's not property. And she shall be his wife because he has, not, he has violated her. And he may not divorce her all her days. So in other words, if you have premarital sex with a girl and she's willing by the context here, and you choose to go that route, and now you have to marry her, it doesn't matter what happens after that, you can't divorce her, even if she's unfaithful to her. So that would make a young man stop and say, wait a minute, do I really want to do this? Do I want to have premarital sex knowing that she can now cheat on me and I can't divorce her ever? I don't think I want to do that. And now it's, you see how it's a deterrent to, to bad behavior. So, and then finally, the seventh one, I don't think I have to explain, don't commit incest. You think your mother, your your mom, your stepmom is hot. You should not touch her. Okay, it's it's just that, it's just that. And the reason this was a problem is because it was very common in those days for men to marry younger, much younger women. So if a guy is thirty and he marries a girl that's nineteen, that was not uncommon. Some people think that's why Joseph was off the scene so soon because he was much older than Mary. Well, they have kids right away. Mom is not as old as dad, so mom's more closer to the oldest son's birthday. So. Anyway, just observation here. So Cain killed Abel. He didn't care about his brother's property. He definitely didn't care about his brother's life. He definitely was not his brother's keeper. And this is what this passage is trying to teach against, that we are our brother's keeper. Jesus was his brother's keeper, and instead of killing his brother like Cain did, he died for his brothers being us. John 3.12 says, We should not be like Cain, who was one of the evil and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Watch this. Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. In other words, he was, he was jealous. First John goes on to say, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for who? The brothers. We are, we are our brother's keeper. All these laws right here, whether they be about property or about staying pure or respecting the farmland around us. It's all about being your brother's keeper. And Jesus was the ultimate brother's keeper that he laid down his life for us. My question for you this morning is, do you know him personally? I'm not asking you, do you go to church? I'm not asking you, have you been baptized? I'm asking you, have you had a time and a place where just like Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again, where you can say, I've had my second birthday. You, everybody in your mind, what is your birthday? Say it to yourself, right? My question to you this morning is, when was your second birthday? Where you were born again, not just physically, but now spiritually, because you invited Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life, and you trusted in what he did on the cross. I would like to ask everybody to pray with me right now, if you would. And if you know for sure you are saved and you know Christ is your Savior, would you pray with me that God would open hearts? But if you don't know for sure, 
If the Holy Spirit is convicting you right now that maybe you're not saved or you know for sure your sin has not been forgiven, then I want to lead you in a prayer right now. And this prayer is not going to save you. It is your heart. It is your faith. But I want to help you with some words so you can reach out to Jesus in your own heart. It could go something like this. Lord Jesus, my sins are so many and my guilt is so heavy. I realize that I am a sinner and I need a Savior. I do believe you're the only Savior of the world. Thank you for dying on the cross for me and for all my sins. Thank you for rising again. I do believe that you died, you were buried, and you rose again. And because you gave your life for me, I give my life to you. Become the Lord of my life. I accept you as Lord and Savior. Thank you for forgiving my sins. In your name I pray. And I I, want to encourage you that if you made that decision, you put your faith in Christ today, I want to help you talk about the next steps. This is my cell phone number. You can call me any day or time, whatever you want. You can call me or text me and let me know that you made that decision. In just a moment, we're going to have um, a question and answer session. Um, I apologize. I probably preached about 10 minutes longer, maybe 15 more than I normally do, but it was a long chapter. Thank you for bearing with me on that. Difficult one, right? (laughs) Difficult, but it, it does make sense. So if you have any questions about what I just preached or anything about Revolution Church, anything about the Bible or social issues that you would like a biblical answer on, you feel free to um, ask that here in just a minute. Real quickly, if this is your first time guest, we have a gift for you at the table. Please go out there and let us find out who you are and get to meet you. Um, We're going to honor Chenda in a couple weeks. She's not able to be here today. Um, You can now give to Revolution Church via Venmo at, and this is wrong, I didn't correct it, sorry, at Revolution Church HTX. At Revolution Church HTX. I apologize for not catching that. This Saturday, we're going to have a men's prayer breakfast. It'll be at Greg DeMent's house. Greg, raise your hand. Okay. If you need directions to his house, see him or Linda or myself, and I can help you with that. Um, Also, uh, the Engage Camp is coming up June 21st through 25th. This is for those kids going into sixth grade or older. If you want to go, please let me know as soon as possible. And uh, even if you don't have the money for it, we're going to help you. The church is going to raise the money for it, and we're going to try to send everybody we can. Next Sunday is Father's Day. We're going to have some bad dad jokes, and we're going to give out some gifts for all the dads, okay? All right. Okay. No, I said this. Okay, good. So two weeks. Thank you for correcting me. I appreciate that. I do. All right, question and answer. Sophia, you, is Sophia here? Sophia, come on up and help me here. So if you have any questions, uh, text me right here. And, um, and then Trevor, we're going to do, you saw the walk away song, right? <laughs> it, yeah, sure, it was in the tank. And then, yes, go, go grab that one there for me, and here you go. Okay. So the first question is, my daughter is struggling with her sexuality and who she likes. What is your advice to me for her? Okay, so it's not, how do I say this right? You're struggling mostly, my my guess is, because of the world around us. Most people 50 years ago weren't struggling with this. They're not say the word some, but now it's a, such a big push that you got, it, it's, it feels questioning. It's not what does Gary think or what does your mom think or what does your friends think. It's what does God think. And Isaiah says, if you will seek me with your whole heart, you will be found in me. You need to ask God with all your heart, God, show me who I am. Show me who I am. And I guarantee you, God will give you the right answer. Okay? 
you, you, if you make this between you and God, and I'm not saying God's going to give you a different answer. I'm just saying you can blow off what I say. You can blow off what the mom says. And you can embrace what your friends are saying or not saying. But you cannot blow off God. Okay? So if you seek God with your whole heart, just look at the way God made you. It's not saying that, 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 that there isn't confusion, that people don't suffer from gender dysphoria. But the Bible also says that God is not the author of confusion. He can heal that. I know if you're supposedly born that way, then why do I know so many former homosexuals who have been saved and have walked away from that lifestyle? Okay? So my short answer is ask God to show you. If you really want to seek him with your heart, he will. If you don't, if you just want to seek what makes you feel good, then you're going to go a different way. How would the linen during the honeymoon tell if a woman was a virgin? What if she lost it and they never found out? Okay, so science, health class here. I'm sorry. <laughs> I started to ask your mom, but I won't. I'll, I'll, mom, I'll take you off the hook, okay? So all females have a membrane that when it's broken, it bleeds. And that's the proof of the virginity on the, on the bed sheet. Sorry. I don't like saying this. Am I blushing? I don't know. But <laughs> Okay. But that, that was the proof, okay? And in some cultures to this day, they celebrate that. that. It's a big deal. They've even been known to hang the sheet out the window. I'm not recommending it, okay? <laughs> Aaron, you're dirty long. Why do you think the shift in the view of divorce shifted from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Um, actually, there is no shift. Oh, we're talking about divorce, right? No, Jesus said it was because the Moses gave an allowance for divorce. Moses was not promoting divorce, but because God told Moses, they're going to do it anyway. So tell them if they're going to do something stupid anyway, do at least for biblical grounds, and that is adultery, okay? And let me just say this. When, let's say your spouse has been unfaithful. You have grounds for divorce, but you also have grounds for forgiveness. And you have to weigh. You have way. Some of the most beautiful situations are where one or the other has been unfaithful and God has healed the marriage and it's actually been stronger than it's ever been. And I know of testimonies of that and that's amazing. But if you are in a situation where it's multiple, 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 and there's no repentance, no repentance, just fake crocodile tears, you have every grounds to, to get out of that abusive relationship. Okay? But Jesus just quoted Moses, said, because of the hardness of your heart, God gave this, this escape clause. So that I don't see a change. What is Calvinism? Great, great question. Um, so Calvinism, so the Bible clearly teaches election, predestination, that you're chosen before the foundations of the world, okay? In fairness to Calvinists, they are defined by the tulip, but they would say there's a whole lot more to Calvinism than the tulip. But the tulip... Quit, quickly is this, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints, okay? And I agree with some of those, but someone who is what might be called a hyper-Calvinist, um, just to make it easy, um, we're using the same words, predestination election, but we're using different dictionaries. Like, I have a big problem with limited atonement. There's just so many scriptures that said Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Calvinists believe that Christ only died for the elect, which is an extremely small number of people. And there are so many scriptures, you have to go around your elbow to get your ear to try to explain them away. In fact, one of my favorite Bible teachers is David Platt. I love him. I listen to him all the time. He is way more, he is very Calvinistic. 
And when he gets to this part where he has to explain it, you, you just hear this like, well, and this actually means this, and this actually means this. And when the Bible says this, it's actually that. And just like, it sure sounds like you're explaining the Bible away. And just when they give their best effort, it's like, I don't know. I understand total depravity. Yes, man is a sinner in need of a savior, cannot save himself. Although we have different ideas of what total means. Um, anyway, but the big one that I have a big problem with is limited atonement. I believe Christ died for me. God is not, Peter said, 2 Peter, right? Chapter 1 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is not a bluff offer. Well, I don't really mean all. I just mean elect. That, that, I just can't jive with that. I, but I do believe we're predestined. And I, you say, well, Gary, how can you have free will, but yet God chose you? You chose God or God chose you? Yep. They're both true. I cannot explain how they're both true. And I've you heard this illustration before, but it's the best one. Jesus is 100% man, amen? Jesus is 100% God, amen? That's 200%. That's, not, that's bad math. I don't know, but it's true. He is, he's not 50-50. He is 100% of both. And you can have 100% free will, and therefore when you reject Jesus Christ, God can judge your sin and be justified. And you can't look at God and say, well, God, I wasn't one of the elect. This isn't fair. You have a free will. But you can be thankful at the same time that God chose you before the foundations of the earth. All right. So this one isn't really a question, but it says not sowing two types of seeds together could potentially be about ruining the soil. Some plants give certain nutrients and take out others. Essentially, all the soil would be depleted or ruined by, natural, by nutrient imbalance. And then wool and linen garments, these two fabrics breathe or wear and age differently. If you put these two fabrics together into one garment, it will never lay well. It will be uncomfortable, and when washed, it will be ruined when it dries. It is completely useless to blend these two fabrics. That's right. That's why Hebrew women put their linen in the gentle cycle of the dryer. That's exactly it right there. So, um, no, that's brilliant. Whoever said that, you're in charge of question and answer next week. All right. Any others? All right, good job. We're going to do prayer, Dan, because I forgot you. Let's stand, and we're going to be dismissed in blessing. Let's give our guests a hand again for being here today. Jermaine, would you come to the mic, and would you pray for us? And Okay, thank you, Jermaine. Let us all bow our head in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are almighty, all-knowing and all-powerful. You are the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. You are the author and finisher of our faith. And we come to the throne boldly this morning, dear Lord, asking that you give us a clear conscience, dear Lord, a clear mind, dear Lord, because we know that the battle is in the mind, dear Lord. We not only pray that we, when we come to the throne boldly, but we ask that you cleanse us and forgive us of our sins for those things known and unknown. Wash us, mind, body, spirit, heart, and soul, Father God, as we pray that you would touch every individual from the crown of their head to the soles of their feet and renew them, refresh them, pour out your anointing upon your people, dear Lord. We thank you for the message that has gone forth, dear Lord, and we just pray over Pastor Gary and every individual in this church for you, those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the church today, dear Lord. We pray that you will help us to apply the word that we heard today to our lives, dear Lord, so that way we can walk in victory this week, 
dear Lord. Not just in, in, in just today, but in this week, dear Lord. We apply every word, every scripture that we hear and read, dear Lord, to our lives, so, Father God, so that way we can look at you and not look at ourselves. So as we come together on one accord, dear Lord, you said that when two or three are gathered in your name, that you're in the midst. But you said when two come in agreement, that it will be done in the heavens as it is in the earth, dear Lord. So we come together as a unit. We thank you for unity, togetherness, dear Lord, for the camaraderie you bring, dear Lord. We ask that you bring joy and peace into our lives today, dear Lord, and remove anything that is not of you. Let your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Let thy kingdom come for your glory, Father God. So in Jesus' name, Lord, we give you the honor, the praise, and the glory. And let the church say amen.